All right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. Science in between. This is Scott. And this is Ollie. And this is episode 101. 101, dude. I know. So that, me- that means it must be the introductory episode. Because, you know, all courses, right. all introductory courses are 101. Right. Or the, you know, when you get a, a checkbook, you know, they start oh, with 101, 101 right? Yeah. Not uh, 001. Uh, you know, our, our, you know, youngsters out there, our young listeners are going, what the heck is a What's checkbook? What's a check? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'd, we'd have to explain to them that back in the day, it was even problematic if you had a low check number when you wrote right. a check. Yeah, right. Like if, like... You're, if you're like check 200, banks are like, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if we can take that. That that might be sketchy. Yeah, that's funny. Well, you know, what? I think that's a good transition into like our topic today, because one of the things that so I just got, came back. I can't wait um, to hear this. No, this is it. Okay. Um, one of the things that uh, made me think about our episode today, which is about international education, was uh, what, what prompted this conversation was, you know, I just gotten back from a trip uh, to Europe and uh, just the difference in how they use money. Like I, um, you know, I'd been to Europe, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. And then in about five years ago, I'd, I'd been to, to England also in Europe, but I'd been in there like, you know, maybe about four times in the last 10 years or so. Um and previously I got money, right? Mm. And not, not anymore. No, no, no need for that. No need you know, for money. No need for money. So just this idea that, you know, the checks are antiquated, but money is now antiquated, right? Yeah. And wherever you go, it's just, and they don't even put the, you know, the cards actually into anything. It's just like a, you know, scan by, mm-hmm. right? And it's just, yeah, it's just wild to see how that has changed. So like, like writing a check would just be like a, foreign concept yeah you know i was just i was just talking to a friend of mine um who's a technology much more of a technology nerd than i am which is saying a little bit i guess but but he was talking about yeah i mean eventually the phone or the watch or is going to be not only your only paying device but your identification device right nobody's going to carry a driver's license anymore you'll have a digital version on your phone you know, you, you won't show it to anybody. You'll just tap it on whatever, you know, like yeah. kids going into a bar are just going to tap their phone on a thing and it'll register who they are and how old they are. You know, when you get pulled over by the police, God forbid, you know, you're going to tap your phone on some device. It'll bring up all your, like that, that's just going to be the way we're headed, right? Is that uh, whether it's a phone or your watch or some other device or a chip in the back of your head or whatever it is, a yeah. little, little thing that they, you know, attach to your finger. And I don't know who knows what the future holds George Jetson in a, you know, uh, a flying, a flying car in a briefcase sort of yeah. world. But um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's what prompted the conversation is like, we should probably spend some time talking about, international STEM education, international science education, which is, you know, while you and I have both spent some time in international classrooms, like you in, in Ireland, me in Sweden, Mm -hmm. um, I don't consider either of us to be experts in those areas, you know? Um, but I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have, um, talked a little bit about like structurally how some of those things are different and, and how America fares in comparison to some of the other ones and, you know, and whether that is even important, right? Like that's yeah. a, or what it even means. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so the, 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 the two big measures that are typically used are the Tim's and the PISA. If you're or PISA, 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 like leading tower of. Exactly. Right? Yep, yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and the, uh, they stand for it and we'll put, you know, a, uh, links in the show notes and stuff. No, links. 
So the, there's the 2019 Trends in International Mathematics and Science Study. That's the TIMSS, T-I-M-S-S. And so the most recent one was 2019. And then they had the 2018 uh, Program from International uh, Student Assessment. PISA. 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 Hey. hey. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And I, I'm and not I, going any further because you're an Italian-American individual and I have no interest in trying to make a funny Italian accent in your presence. Yeah, it's okay. I uh, we've talked about my yeah. uh, it, your, inability your one accent. Yeah, my one accent, accent, <laughs> my inability to uh, do accents. Although it doesn't keep me from doing them. No, right? no, of course, no, of course not. Uh, yeah. uh, well, I mean, it, so look, if we take a look at the um, the Tim stuff, I think that's a, probably a, a a pretty good place to start. Um, and and what the Tim's is, you know, they give tests to to people in countries they give them to students people and... in countries 15 year olds is that the well tim's is fourth grade and eighth grade right and pisa is 15 year olds whatever grade that is yeah. you know across yeah which is it's one of the reasons why we do the assessments that we do in america like we you know the fourth and the eighth and the fifth uh 15th are the big ones that we do in mm. in science and in, in in at least in pennsylvania I, um, and so what they, they take a look at is, it, you know, they compile all that data for uh, different countries and then they do comparisons. And one of the things I think is the, the interesting you know, part for me is looking at the, the score gaps, right, in terms of the, what the 90th percentile group does and versus the 10th percentile group mm-hmm. does and in comparisons. And, and so, I don't know, I mean, America falls in the top. 20 of you know in terms of the 90th percentile like you know some of the countries that do better than us on the tims is singapore hong kong korea china japan um you know these are countries that you know tend to be a little bit more homogeneous than you know america you know i mean that's might be painting with a broad brush because homogeneity you know from a distance may not really be the same if you're look you're actually living in singapore in, in Hong Kong or something, but, um, you know, we, I mean, we're in the top 20, but our scores are like, not that, you know, radically different than like, I don't know. So if we look at, you know, Russia or, uh, let me go down a little bit further, Ireland, which is someplace you've spent some time in, yep. right. Their top yep. score, they're that 90th percentile score. They're in a, they're in the top 10, their score is 643, you know, mm-hmm. America's is 639. So not radically different in that, that group, right? It's like, you know, um, our students are performing relatively closely to that, you know. Um, now, in Singapore, it's like 720. So they're, you know, doing great in comparison. Well, they're getting high scores. They're getting high scores. Let's, right. let's say that. Right. But yeah. I mean, let's let's take a step back because a couple things you did there that I think we probably need to unpack a little is like, you know, going back to this, why do we do this? Right. And then also, I think... You know, the the challenge here is to, you know, we we have some data. I'm going to use scare quotes around that. So we have some data. We have some evidence before us. And then we start making inferences about what it is that causes these differences. What what it is that me, you know, why is it that, you know, China and, and Singapore have the top scores and, you know, the United States is in the top group. But, you know, I mean. If you if you're looking at the PISA scores, the China the top scoring region in China is 590, 
and the United States is 502. So that's a hundred point difference. And I don't know, you know, some of it is like, what do these scores mean? Like, are they, are they absolute scores? Are they, are they relative scores? Are they, are they, um, you know, like the SAT where they're based on median, uh, and, and standard deviation, or are they just raw scores? So a lot, there's a lot of questions. I don't, I don't know this data well, so I can, I'm assuming that it's all sort of raw score given the, the range, but, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a gradual increase in scoring until you get, you know, some, somewhere up into the top three or four. And then all of a sudden there's this asymptotic change in the scores where they all go up really fast. So like one of the questions is, you know, like you, you mentioned homogeneity. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the possible explanations for this, but, but there are others. And sure. and I think uh, thinking about like a, what these scores mean and, and then taking a step back and thinking about sort of the culture of, of these different, um, you know, schooling system. So that's something that I think our personal experience can bear on and that we can talk a little bit. May I'd be interested to hear, you know, what your thoughts are about Sweden as a as a school system. Like get, you know, what you've experienced and I can talk a little bit about Ireland too and and um and what I learned from that in my, you know, as you say, relatively limited exposure. But um but I think some of that's interesting too because you know, in the same way that we have this sort of apprenticeship of observation where we're in a science classroom our whole lives. And so we think that's what science teaching looks like. We think we know what school likes looks like because we were in school, but yeah. school here and school other places is not the same thing. And I think talking about that and what it means is important. So I'm curious, maybe you can talk about your history with Swedish schools and then how much experience you've had and what your sort of POV is on, on Swedish versus American schooling. Yeah. So I, 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 I can't say that I spent extensive amount of time. Um, we were, you know, we had taken some students uh, in 2019 for a, a year long, a, a week long experience so that we were in schools, um, a middle school in Sweden, um, in Stockholm uh, for a whole week where we spent time. Our students were, were teaching in those classrooms. And so we were observing a lot of science teaching in this one school. Mm -hmm. And so that's the limitation of my experience. So I have a very, you know, um, I only spent about a week and it was in a single school. It was an international school. So they spoke in English. So they taught like, I think it was like 60 or 70% of their classes in English because they wanted the, the students to be able to speak in both Swedish and in, in, in English because it, you know, helped to prepare them for, you know, more international, um, you know, work. Mm -hmm. um, so that in itself, now I will say that one of the unique things about um, Sweden is while, you know, education is free. Um, not only at the K to 12 level, but also at the post-secondary level, um, it's a lot of it's privatized. So there are companies who are running schools. And so, um, you know, the government pays the school systems and, and they run the school. Interesting. Um, but one of the really interesting things for me that I saw in, in this, well, I would say the science instruction wasn't very much different in terms of like how the actual classroom was taught or how it was organized. One of the unique things about um, the, the, the actual experience for the students is just the amount of freedom that students had for individual inquiry and the individual use of time. Like I saw that 
you know, in, you know, in America, they would, we would have very specific, you know, blocks of time and we gave them, you know, four or five minutes to go from one class to the next class. Mm -hmm. And then every single second of the day was planned from, you know, seven o'clock or seven 30 in the morning till like two 33 o'clock in the afternoon in a typical middle school. Um, that was not the experience here. Um, these students were given a lot of freedom. Um, they were given a lot of freedom in terms of, um, what they were doing outside of class. Classes were not starting like every four minutes or five minutes after a class ended. So there are blocks of time for students to congregate in halls or, you know, there was a, you know, a, a field outside of one of the classrooms and the students would go out and play mm-hmm. because they had a block of time. Um, lunch was completely different. There was like, you know, so much more freedom in terms of what the students did. And some students would, you know, only be there to like maybe 12, 31 o'clock and then would leave. And then it was just like the, the concept of this, like we keep arguing against this industrial age education. And this, you know, this was clear that it was not that like students were coming and doing work and engaging in stuff outside of classroom because there was lots of spaces outside of the classroom where students could congregate and work and talk and do all that stuff. And, and that was just something that is very foreign in in our country. Like we yeah. plan the whole day for students down to the minute, right? Down to yeah. the minute. Like and yeah. and that was something for me that was radically different when I saw how education occurred in, in Sweden. Um Yeah, literally like we joke about school schedules here where it's like eleven nineteen to twelve oh two is right. you know, and it's like, wow, that is crazy. Yeah. And, and that, that starting on that minute, like starting, you know, where you had mm-hmm. like, it was just, and, and, and there's very little time. Like we all, I mean, I guess we do it in, in, in places in schools, you know, where students have freedom, maybe as juniors or seniors they have, or, you know, they get an, you know, an honors card where they have more freedom to, mm-hmm. you know, pass from place to place. But, but I think that it was just so radically different. And I, I would say the other part, to me was not only was it that for the students, but it was that for the teachers too. So the teachers had, you know, there was no, I mean, I think they ate lunch with the students. Um, Mm -hmm. But outside of that, there was no like study hall. There was no hall monitoring. There was no, Mm -hmm. so there were like blocks of time for teachers to work together on topics and work together on projects and work together. Mm -hmm. And and while I think when we look at these scores from the Tims and, and the Pisa, and we look at that as and say, okay, this is how our students are performing. We must be teaching something different, or we must be teaching something, you know, someone's doing it better than us. Mm-hmm. I, I think it comes back to that cultural things that you're talking about, because, you know, it's the culture of schools. It's the culture of the professionalism of teachers and how we approach them. It's the preparation mm-hmm. for teachers. Um yeah, so much of that and is, you know, about the culture and not about just simply, hey, our students aren't performing as well. We got to change. You know, maybe it's the textbooks, right? right? Those are, that's like fixing the stuffs on the stuff on the edges, right? It's like yeah, that's yeah. those are the yeah changing a textbook is easy. Yeah, yeah, this the the school down the road is doing better, so we better just adopt that you know textbook or buy new computers or whatever structural stuff is hard and the cultural stuff is so much harder. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, an interesting thing. So, so my experience, I have two international experiences. So my primary one, like we talked about was in Ireland, I, in 2012, 13, I, 
I went over to um, Dublin City University and was there for a full year. And I did teacher education. I taught teacher ed classes. So, you know, shout out to friend of the show, Paul Van Campen um, and and the folks at uh, uh, um, at DCU. And I, I did, you know, I was in schools in Ireland for uh, for a year, uh, not every day for a year, but like I would have been as a teacher educator and and taught teacher education students there. And then prior to that, I was in Amsterdam um, doing similar work to what you did. I was there for a week looking at uh, doing supervision for student teachers that were placed there from from Penn State. Um, and I guess I want to talk about that one first for a second, because I think I saw similarities there. And another thing that I'll add um, that I saw in the Netherlands is that the it was a very open campus. So students got themselves to school. There was no busing. They took public transport like everybody else. They came when they had a class and they left when they didn't. And teachers did the same thing. So there, it, it felt it felt more almost like a university in that respect. There was, as you entered the, the school, there was a giant electronic board that had the schedule for the day and all the rooms and whatever on it. And kids would just sort of negotiate that all themselves. And uh, and I think an important piece of that that we talk about in this show is is has to do with agency. Right. And and like you right. said, agency both for the kids, but also for the teachers, like the teachers, you know, they didn't have to like sit in their room um, because they were on the clock. Right. And and one of the things that we carry as a legacy in the United States of of the unions here is that. Teachers are treated very much like manufacturing workers, that they have very strict hours. They they tend to have contracts. And some schools are more or less flexible about those hours, um, depending on the relationship between the administration and the unions. Some teachers are more or less, you know, some teachers say, look, I work from this time to this time and don't ask me to do anything outside of those hours. Um so it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, going back to, like you were saying, this sort of culture of like, what is school? What is the culture of school? How do we think about school? How do we think about agency? Um, but relatedly, I think uh, connecting back to the PISA that I think is really interesting is when you look at the top schools, um, performance schools, you do have a, a lot of um, schools from Asia. So Singapore, Korea, Japan, uh, China, um, and those schools, generally speaking, tend to be very authoritarian and highly structured and hierarchical, right? Those schools are not, um, those school systems are not like the school systems we're describing in Northern Europe, um, like Finland and Sweden and, and, and the Netherlands, which, but those schools also score very highly. So there's this interesting thing about like high scoring schools sort of are bimodal. They're, they're the high scoring schools that look like, Asia, where there's a, a large emphasis in those schools on testing and on on sort of structured learning, sort of remote, uh, rote learning. And then on the other end, the other high scoring schools are these schools that are much more open and have more agency for kids right. and have have this sort of sense of community and and a very, you know, aren't testing focus and aren't the same way. Um, so I, th I find that fascinating about these scores that the highest scoring ones sort of fall. And the United States is somewhere in the middle. Like we're not, we're not as test focused as some, uh, some cultural uh, schools and we're not as sort of open as others. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. The Netherlands is in the top 10 for the math PISA. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and Amer on the mathematics PISA, America's like not in the top 30. 
Yeah. You know? And so yeah, math, we really fall down compared to science right. on those test scores. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there is something there. I, I, I find that like kind of, that that's really interesting too, that, you know, it's either like really, really controlled or really, really free. You know, they have a lot of agency or a very little agency. Right. And I think in America, we're trying, we have this illusion of Asian agency, right? You have this mm. illusion that, you know, cause I think we, you know, land of the free and all that, but then, you know, when we get to it structurally and culturally, there's a lot of control that happens on, yeah. you know, and that, especially in schools um, that we see it in, in terms of, you know, like when I was in Sweden, um, you know, in these middle school classrooms, they were getting themselves to school too. Mm-hmm. Like these were yeah. students, they were not mass bust. Like right. they weren't like, cause they were, you know, riding public transportation coming in and they, you know, got bus passes and they figured it out, they figured yeah. it, you know? And, and so that's, that's, very that would be a foreign concept for a lot of our schools no pun intended right yeah yeah i I know um but you know maybe in some urban environments that happens but in you know in other places that just would just be you know like why would we do that why would we have our school kids come in and go like we we need them in school at seven o'clock in the morning. Right. We need to have them in the school till three o'clock because I think that that you know culturally our schools offer something different for families. You know, there's mm-hmm. this you know it's a place where they you know that was one of the things that came out during the pandemic. It's like, well, hold on, we're gonna, they're going to be learning on the computer. Well, what are we going to do with them? When, you know, if they're yeah. not, and it's like, oh, all right. You know, yeah. I have to. I've got to go to. I got to go to work. I got to. As you know, parents were you know really worried about. Um, you know, supervision and worried about like, you know, monitoring them. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to how complex these, these issues are, right. That it's not, you know, like for example, the reason a lot of these Scandinavian countries can operate the way they do in terms of getting kids, you know, letting kids sort of do what they do, get themselves to school, be agentic, leave during periods and things like that. Well, there's all sorts of pieces that have to exist in society, large, the larger society for that to work, right? I mean, you have to have, you have to have good public transportation, for example, right? Because kids who are 12 years old are not going to learn how to drive themselves. Now, maybe in some places like in the Netherlands, there's a really good bike system. And so kids can bike a lot of the time. Okay, well, that's fine. But that still is a system that has to be in place. And then for that other agency piece to happen, you also have to have a culture where kids are prepared to have that agency. And also their home lives are supported in ways that maybe their parents are available more often, right? For however that gets done, the, the society is organized so that one parent is home more often or whatever, and that that is there's social and economic support for that kind of thing. And all those pieces fit together in and are grounded in values and culture and long-term development of those, of those, um, you know, communities in which all this is happening. So it's so this, it's so fraught to do these comparisons because, um, they're complicated. I mean, you, you know, you look at why, why are some, some countries scoring very high? Well, sometimes the reason they score very high is because their school systems eliminate a lot of kids from the from right. the system so that they don't get scored, right? And you know they go off and go into some other um, career Crack. path, yeah. right? They're and like they, uh, they're not tested, yeah. And and you know, public education or education 
is something that maybe, you know, we try to do that in America for all of our students, right? And that isn't necessarily the same in every country, right? Right. Well, and that's, it's reflected in the, you know, one of the things that's noted in these scores is that the U.S. in, in the top group, maybe in the top 30 or so countries has the biggest spread of scores, the biggest difference between the lowest 10% and the highest 90% or the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile, sorry, the top 10% and the bottom 10% are the biggest, there's the biggest spread in the U.S. of any of the schools in like, you know, the top 30. Um, And then as you get lower into the rankings, the the distribution gets bigger. But, But I think, you know, Part of that is, I think, exactly what you're saying, Ali, a reflection of who is in our school system and and our efforts to, um, you know, at least pay lip service to the idea that we educate all of our students in our public schools. Yeah. Well, I think that what we are doing here is what's what happens in a lot of you know, school districts in, in America, right. Is we're comparing, you know, the performance of school district a to school district B, which, you know, are structurally very, very different. Like Mm -hmm. one might be like this, you know, suburban district that is well-financed, which has, you know, all of their teachers had, you know, certifications in their content area, maybe advanced degrees in their content areas, Mm -hmm. you know, they have, you know, these awesome facilities and then you have another, you know, school down the road um, that doesn't have that same sort of, you know, makeup. And it is hard to make those comparisons because the thing we would do is, well, you know, school district, you know, beam is doing so much better because look at all this stuff that they're doing. And and like, how do you change the other stuff? Like you just it's hard. It's it's hard to make those those changes because it's it's easy for us to say, well, let's just change the sequence of classes or or yeah. change how we teach science. You know, even that's a hard thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. But but the you know, we know that one of the things that um you know impacts students' ability for, for from a literacy standpoint is reading to them as as kids, right? Mm-hmm. You know, parents reading to them. Yeah. But that that requires time. That requires, you know, lots of resources to be able to do that. Yeah. And there's lots of access, access to books. And there's lots of families that that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And so um, making those sorts of structural, cultural differences and changes is, it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your point, I think it, it, I forget now, I don't think they do this anymore. At least I'm not noting in the current scores, but, or, or maybe it was uh, NAEP and not uh, so the national exams, but I thought it was on international um, that some states actually pulled out, didn't pull out, were uh, paid, I think was the way it worked to have themselves ranked or scored independently of the United States. So I remember Massachusetts was one of them. So they basically said, look, we don't want to be lumped in with all everybody else in the US. We want our scores pulled out separately because we know we're doing a better job than average. And of course, it, it does turn out to be the case um, that Massachusetts scores when pulled out. And again, this must have been years ago because I'm not seeing it in this in the scores now. But um Mass, or maybe it's reported somewhere else in a separate way, but um, Massachusetts scores were higher than the United States by a significant amount. So they were up in the mix of the top, you know, three or four countries. Um, and, you know, that that's an indication of all sorts of things, again, culturally, sure. um, but does show you, you know, that that, that there are. There are cultural differences. There are structural differences. There are um, regional differences that are that are a result of all that cultural difference. And um, 
And so it, you know, like at least in some of these, China is broken into multiple parts. I don't know. I don't know how they choose all this and how they make decisions about this, but, but it would be interesting to see some of that, like some of the subdivision of these scores and what that indicates about, um, about our school systems, because, you know, you can imagine Tim's scores or PISA scores broken out by state and what that would look like. Um, and my guess is that that stuff exists somewhere. I don't know where it is, but, um, but NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, I believe is what NAEP stands for, um, is a is a national-based test that that um does compare states. Um and and so I think there are, you know, there are interesting ways to think about this. But I but I think the thing that I keep coming back to is like not not thinking about uh simple explanations for these phenomenon right and that if if there's anything we we are consistently talking about on this podcast it's that right yeah. like these phenomenon whether we're talking about science phenomenon or educational phenomenon are incredibly complex and nuanced and wicked and dynamic and all the other words that you use to describe it and so when you put a single number and say okay you know the united states score in science is 502 well there that number is is glossing and hiding a tremendous amount of complexity and so trying to think about how to interpret that in a way that's meaningful and helps it's not that it doesn't give us information because it does but i think we can we can jump easily to big conclusions about what that number tells us about the united states or any of the other countries that are on this list and our relative position to them so um so I think the scores are useful, but the you know the personal experience is useful too, and and understanding um, you know there are big differences um, between these cultural systems that that the schools are embedded in. I think this this is something that I you know after spending some time doing some traveling that I I I really am interested in. It's something yeah. that that I think can you know I, like I like we started this episode with is that I'm you know neither of us are you know would identify ourselves as experts in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I think work that, you know, there's there, as we were preparing for the show and doing some research, there's just, isn't a whole lot out there in terms of, you know, what does school a look like school, you know, school system a look like versus school system B, you know, um, in terms of the, the structural stuff. And maybe I need to dig a little bit more into it to, to find that stuff. But I mean, there's lots of scores, you know, mm-hmm. they, and they, you know, there's some, you know, a little bit of qualitative work here and there, but not nearly enough in terms of, um, you know, and, and I think that that's probably not just for STEM education, but for other areas too, you know, that, sure. and, and while I find the, uh, the scores from these tests to be pr- interesting, they just, it just what it does is prompts more questions for me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you know, you, you you were talking about how um, you know Massachusetts was pulling itself out. As you look at the Tim scores, that's pretty common. That like like if you look at Canada, their Quebec pulled themselves out, Ontario pulled themselves out because mm. they were like, hey, I just want to, we just want to be, you know, we want to st- distance ourselves from yeah, Canada writ large. It, like even Northern Ireland pulled themselves out of, right. you know, because they the, they have Northern Ireland, England, both in the UK, and then Ireland is its own separate thing, and you know throughout. They they have Flemish Belgium versus uh-huh. Belgium, you know. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, like, and that in itself, there's something probably going on there culturally that you're like, sure. hey, you know. But 
you know, unless you're in that country, you have no idea what that is. Right. Well, it reminds me of the Ted Lasso um, scene where he says to to Ted Lasso says to his his fellow coaches, how many countries are in this country? And they both say four. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's but it's true. Like, you know, like all of these and maybe this is this goes on brand and on theme for us too. like all of these distinctions in some sense are arbitrary, right? Like if we look at the whole United States, that tells us something. But if we break it out by state, that tells that tells us a different story. And so yeah. when when we think that the the division that we've made is leads to some absolute truth that's right. independent of all that context, that's where you get into messy territory because it's just not the case, right? There are big differences between US schools. And I think part of the reason there isn't a lot of comparative education work at that level of depth, um, or maybe again, you and I aren't aware of it, is it's hard work, right? Like even yeah. doing that, even doing that in the state of Pennsylvania, looking at the diversity of of different kinds of schools sure. would be hard. But then if you say all of the U.S., that's you, again, you've added a not just a a little bit of complexity, you probably minimum an order of magnitude, if not two orders of magnitude complexity. And now, if you move outside of the cultural context of the United States, which we can decide about how homogeneous that is. Now we're going to say like, oh, we're going to go look at Estonia or we're going to go look at Kenya and we're going to compare, you know, the Netherlands to Kenya to to Japan to the United States. It's like, wow, that is a that is a big task to go in and figure out like how to how to think about doing that in a way that either doesn't gloss the detail or um, or gets lost in the weeds of the detail. Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, this is going to be, it, it's not designed to be self-serving, but uh, it's going to sound that way. Mm. So one of the first projects I did in my doctoral work was in your class, which is around physics first. Do you remember yep. this? I do. Yeah. And, and so for folks who who aren't familiar, physics first uh, was a movement. I don't know how big of a movement it is now, but there was a, a push in you know the early 2000s about making physics be the first class that gets taught at the at in high school um so changing the sequence from you know biology chemistry physics to physics and being and rather than it being like taught you know very mathematically have it be taught more conceptually and and having it mm-hmm. you know serve as a way to help students better understand the nature of science better understand inquiry you know and and really serve as a way to help students understand how science actually works and as a process and then leading into more, you know, into chemistry or biology or whatever. And so this movement, you know, there was, a, you know, probably, I don't know, a couple dozen schools in the country that were doing this. And so my project in your class, which actually led to a publication in Physics Teacher, um, was, uh, was to analyze this, to try to get, like, to try to capture what this looked like. That was hard work, just trying to be able to, you know, get like what textbooks they use, what how they organize their curriculum, what types of stuff they teach during the course of the year. Like that type of, you know, just at that surface level was really hard to gather. Now, like to actually get into those classrooms to be able to see what that looks like, that would be even harder. Yeah. And and we're talking two dozen schools that were all like in the part of this movement in, yeah. you know, in America. Yeah. And yeah, so trying to get to that level of detail uh, or nuance at a state level or a national level or an international level, that's hard work, no doubt. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, why 
Um, I, I always struggle with, you know, things like the what works clearinghouse and sort of experimental methodologies in education as, as the quote unquote gold standard. And I think there's been a move away from that ARA and others have written, um, you know, pieces, white, white papers about this, but, um, but this idea that experimental methodologies are the gold standard and, and you think about like controlling variables in these educational contexts and it's just really, you know, I'm not saying that there you can't do experimental work, um, though I think it's very difficult, and you can do quantitative work, but I think it tells you um, because there's so many variables in these contexts, it tells you relatively superficial things about those contexts, and I think this is an example of that. 502 as a science score in the U.S., well, it tells you something, but it doesn't tell you a lot, and it certainly doesn't tell you much that you can do in terms of changing practice because comparing the U.S. to the the the, the places that are above and below us doesn't give us a lot of help in terms of thinking about how to improve our schools. If that's the goal of this, like if the goal of this is, okay, where is America? And we want to make quote unquote better science education in, um, in the U S well, how does that 502 versus China's 590 number help us do that? Do we really want to have schools that look like China, um, or for that matter, like the Netherlands, or do we want something else? Do we want an American school system that's better? And if so, how does comparing ourselves to the Netherlands or China actually help us? Is there, are there other ways that we can guide improvement that don't involve comparison? And and for me, that also gets back to this core idea around deficit perspectives on learning, Right. right? I mean, it, if you ha- if you set an arbitrary bar and and people try to reach it, well, then anybody who doesn't reach it is considered less than, and I think that's what happens when you get these kinds of scores. You know, the, one of the things we talked about before was um, with, and this is off air, was what a one idea that I have for a, an episode is it good for science education? Remember, to- I yeah, talked about this. Yeah. It's a, a something from Code Switch. There's a Code Switch yeah. podcast that that I like, and they do this running scene. Is it good for you know dot dot dot? And so, ah, uh, this would be one of those topics. Is is like the Tim's and the Pisa? Is that good for science education in America? Right. I don't know. I don't know if it's good for for it because you know one of the things that is good is that since we're not performing that great it does consistently cause you know there to be increased interest in improving mm-hmm. science education and that but it that but then again there's this it forms this deficit mindset that what we're doing in science education what we're doing in science and math and and the way we teach it and the way we prepare teachers to do it, teach it is is wrong or not you know but it not none of it ever addresses that cultural stuff Right. And it also yokes you to that measure. So so if you say like, oh, my gosh, have you seen the Tim's and PISA scores? Right. Like our scores are so low. We need to put money into science education. OK, fine. So now you've motivated people. You've not- motivated politicians to potentially take this thing seriously and put some some wood behind the arrow, put some money in there. Well, now in a few years, they're, if the scores don't change, they're going to come back and say, hey, man, what's going on here? Uh, hey, person. Sorry. Hey, what, hey what's going? Hey, what's you. going on? Hey, you. Um, what's going on? Like you said, this was a big problem. We gave you all this money to try and make improvement, and here the score is still a five hundred two, or now it's a five hundred four after three years of huge infusions of cash. And it's yeah. like, so yeah, these measures are a double edged sword in that respect too, because 
Um, I don't think, and I could be wrong about this too. I'd like to look at the historic trends here, but I don't think these things have changed much. I don't think no. the United States has moved around much. I don't think any of these countries have probably moved around that much. Some of them probably have due to things like political instability and other issues in those countries. But but generally speaking, I think this is what these scores have looked like since they started doing this work, you know, 50 years ago or whatever. So um, so what is that telling us, too? I mean, this this idea of like, well, we're, this is a pretty stable pattern over time of these scores. So are the scores really helping us in any way? Um, and if so, how? I'm not sure. Right. I'm not sure what is actionable based on this this list that doesn't just, you know, again, yoke you to these scores. And then, and then if you can't improve them, and of course there's analogies here, right. To when we talk with, with folks who work in schools in the U S about their test scores, right. When we go yeah. in and they're like, this is how many kids are proficient on the keystone. And this is, you know, that they, if that's the only metric for improvement, well, then you're stuck with it. And then what do you do about it? If you think if you think of that as a piece of information in a larger portfolio of information that helps you think about the quality of your instruction, well, that puts you in a different place. So I think I think we do it is important to think about what the what the nature of these scores are and what they actually tell us. Yeah. So yeah. is it good for science education? I don't know. I, I say nah. Well, I mean yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Plus it it me. Yeah, I still think that's an episode. I still think that's an okay. episode. We're, All right, it might not be as as it, it might be like the draft episode. We thought it was going to be a great episode, and it turned out to be eh, not that okay. great. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, we agreed on a lot of stuff. That was the problem. So, so we need to, you know, we need to make a list of things that's right, and, and we need to pick some things that might be controversial, right? Sure. Yeah. And, uh, controversial with us. That's the trick, right? We yeah, agree on too much stuff. Too much. We do agree on a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. I disagree know? with that. I, I don't think. <laughs> yes. We need we need more. One of us to shake fists at clouds. Shake fist at cloud. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So I think we, you know, we, we, we kind of dipped our toes in the international yeah. waters a little bit. That's what I did That's there. about all we're going to do today. Just dip <laughs> yeah. our toes in the international waters. Yeah. So that that's, uh, you know, I can't, I can't. I can't wait to travel again. I will yeah. say that all that did this, this, this trip this summer just makes me want to go back. And so um, one of the challenges for me was that tra traveling in the summer schools aren't open. Yeah. And so there wasn't a, any opportunity for me to do any sorts of connections to be able to go into schools and see that. But I think that's something I'm going to try to do a little bit more down yeah. the road is to try to, and that might be some work that we could do together, Scott. That'd be kind of yeah. cool. That'd be yeah. good. Well, yeah. that and that transitions, I think, into the the last segment of our show every uh, every time, every week, uh, which is joys. Yeah. So you want to start, or uh, I don't know. Maybe we have the same one again. So I'm a little nervous. Oh, last time think, we had the same. I, I, I don't know. I this would be it would be a, a shocker. All right, well, to move. You go first. You go I, first. I saw Bullet Train. Oh um, yeah, that's on my list. Yeah. It is okay. So. If you like John Wick, and and who doesn't like John Wick? Who doesn't? Uh, like? I, I, I probably. And what's a lot wrong with you if you don't? Yeah. John well, John Wick is you know really violent, um, yeah. but it's like kind of cartoonish, cartoonish violence, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, it's not Anvil falling on a head cartoonish violence, but it's definitely like it's like stormtroopers getting shot in Star Wars violence. Yeah. Um, I would say this is, you know, so the concept of bullet train is, you know, this, this guy played by Bad, Brad Pitt, Ladybug is his name, um, his code name uh, is, you know, 
gets you know a job to go onto a bullet train and steal a briefcase and then jump off you know so he's got to find this briefcase and that's the simple premise of this this movie now what where's the briefcase come from you know who else is involved that's the next two hours Mm -hmm. and it is at times you know laughably funny because it is like so intricate it is like there's some really great characters there's some really great ongoing um conversations like there's this whole thomas the tank engine thing (laughs) in it that is awesome where the one character wants to label everyone well that person's a diesel that person's a percy that person's a thomas and you know because he's like it's a metaphor for life that to me is awesome you know and uh there's a couple like running gags like that throughout it like one's about luck and fate and you know being lucky versus being unlucky and karma and all that that's a running theme that's where the ladybug comes from because this you know the brad pitt character feels like he's always unlucky you know like everything Mm -hmm. that happens and you know so that's something that's a running theme throughout it so there's several of those which i kind of like i kind of like when it's you know these there's these ongoing themes and when they like reemerge like there's a whole thing with the water bottle that is just you know really kind of brilliant you know because mm-hmm. this water bottle keeps you know showing up and and you know then there's this like a like a one minute two minute segment later in the that like almost tells the whole movie from the water bottle's perspective <laughs> which is <laughs> It is really very fun. It's 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 not going to be up for any Academy Awards or anything, yeah. but it is good fun. Like right. it is, you know, it, it's kind of like Nobody. It's kind of like yeah. John Wick. It's kind of like, you know, those kind of cartoonish, you know, violent movies where, yeah, where somebody's on a, a trek or somebody's on an adventure or somebody's trying mm-hmm. to accomplish a task and then meet some resistance, you yeah. know? Yeah, fun. well, some of that sounds a lot like Letterkenny, which is, I'm sure, another yeah. reason you like it. The yeah. sort of wordplay and the and the They're, repeating themes that always, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How are you now? Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I will I will move that up my list a little bit. Um, so uh, mine is a podcast that I recently uh, was recommend, had recommended to me by a former student. Um, so shout out to uh, Jake Margolis, if he's listening who um, now is down in, in North Carolina, but um, was, was a student here at Penn state and, and got his uh, teaching degree. And so he, he, he's from state college. He was up here visiting. He's like, Oh, I got this podcast you should listen to. And I listened to it and he was right. I should be listening to this podcast more often. So um, what is called, this podcast? You keep talking I'm about this. I'm right. trying to give some sto- backstory here. Okay. That's what, that's right. what the people like. They like things to have a story. They don't want to just to have it dropped on them. Like you, you know, right. All right. So uh, Sean Carroll's Mindscape. Mindscape. So yeah, Mindscape. He's a cognitive uh, cognitive scientist, neurologist. I don't know exactly. I should know more about him. I'll try and figure that out. But but I I've I started listening to episode two hundred three, which is N J Enfield on why language is good for lawyers and not scientists. And uh, I have found it to be super fascinating and really w- right on point for a lot of the things that that I think about in terms of language and explanations and um, and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I just I, I liked so so much of this episode, really. But but I'm going to I just want to read one little quote here um, from from 
from the uh, NJ Enfield, um, and he's a linguist. Enfield's a linguist from Australia. Um, but he he was saying so in in the book. I say words are off switches for the mind, and that's and uh, and what he means by that is you do a kind of satisficing. You do a kind of shutting down of your reasoning process when you have language you're happy with simply because everything is going by so fast and you have all this stuff to do. And I think the reason that is so important to me is that it reminds me of this idea that this is what we do to kids. We give them this language that that fills in for the explanation and it shuts down their reasoning process. They don't think about it. You just say, mm. like, here's the definition of photosynthesis. Write it down. Like, And so, so they... There, it, that word and and giving them a definition for that word that is unambiguous and means only this thing um, shuts down their reasoning process. And I think for me that is such an, a powerful notion. And to have sort of the neuroscience a little bit behind that in the linguistics, I think is fascinating. So I have I have I need to do more thinking about this, but um, but I really thought it was interesting. He talks about you know. The fundamental point he's making is that language developed not um, for descriptive purposes, which is what science would have us use language for to mean very specific things, but to um, to for social coordination and explanation. That's why language developed. And so if you think about it that way, it sort of transforms your notion of of um, both what it means to talk, but particularly what it means to talk about science. So I, I found it to be really interesting. I'm sure there'll be other episodes that I enjoy, but but um, but at the very least, if you only want to listen to one episode, I'd listen to this Enfield episode because it was really pretty fantastic. I think our joys say a lot about who we are as people. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> here so, I am talking about dumb movies and, you know, and you're over there talking about podcasts that. Yeah. Know. But if you look back, you could look at our joys website and see our page on, on the, because for those of you who don't know, we, we keep a running web page that has all of our joys on it and all the links. So you can go. And if you don't want to listen to the podcast and you just want to hear about all our joys, you can go there. If you look there, you will find that that what Ali just said is completely unfounded. There are many weeks when he talks about something that is uh, powerful, academic, interesting, relevant, and I talk about like The Boys, which is like a highly sexualized and violent television <laughs> program that nobody should watch who's under the age of twenty. Wow. And, yeah, and and if you're over the age of twenty, don't watch it with your parents. Yeah, and well, maybe just don't watch it because it's disturbing, but yeah. awesome. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, hey, good hanging with you. Good hanging with you. Yeah, we'll Catch see you next, next time. time. Oop, in between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>